Uh, it's great to see, if you haven't noticed, from 3,000 miles away, Sam Boner is with us this morning. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> and from 10,000 miles away, not to be, you know, outdone, <laughs> Julie is with us this morning. <laughs> All right, well, great. If you would, open up to John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 22 through 36, or at least read through those. Um, this first slide, what are, these, what are these pictures examples of? Anybody know? What is it? A mosaic. Um, what is a mosaic? Anybody know? Anybody define it? What is it? How is it made? Yeah, so it could be, it could be, it's a picture design. Um, you can see in the left, I thought that was cool. That's actually an eye, you know, looking out, out uh, the side. It's, it's a picture design. These are ancient mosaics, and uh, they're made of multitude of tiles. They could be, they could be any hard um, material. They're small colored pieces. Could be tile, could be stone, could be glass even. And they form a picture. And a few years ago, Phil Dunbar, some of you remember Phil from when he lived up here, he and his wife, Megan, and their family, um, at what I believe was a, a True North graduation ceremony at Three Springs Ministries, shared, shared using the illustration of a mosaic. And it always, always stood out to me. And he kind of stated the obvious that each piece of tile... You got to imagine like that, that picture of that gypsy girl there is made of all these individual tiles. If you, if you ever want to just, you know, Google uh, these images, some of them are just absolutely spectacular. Um, each piece of tile that's beautifully colored and perfectly placed come together piece by piece to create a complete work of art. And, and his encouragement was that each of our lives is like a single tile. One tile, together, <laughs> throughout God's history, beautifully colored and perfectly placed pieces, God is creating a mosaic. Um, let's read John 3, verses 22 through 36. It says, after this, and, and prior to this is... Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus, very famous exchange with Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, this is John the Baptist, not the apostle, was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, I think, or that could have been a, a certain Jew's collection of Jews, over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, so who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus. Well, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what God, what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent 
ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all, and the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on Him. May God bless His word. I think we see here that John is content being a single tile in God's mosaic. Last week, we briefly considered the birth and ministry of John the Baptist, or the baptizer. He wasn't, um, he didn't start a denomination, if that's confusing to anyone. He wasn't like a Baptist. He was, he's John the baptizer, right? And John was the one, as we saw last week, that prepared the way for Jesus. But to do so, we saw that God first had to prepare a way for John. And we reflected on some of the ways that that's true as well for us. That God has prepared a way for us, an infinite love, an infinite wisdom, ordaining the days of our lives, choosing when and where we're born, wiring our temperaments, giving us gifts and talents, preparing opportunities for us to do good in his name, all the while, amazingly, simultaneously, giving us free will. And as Christians, we're, faithful to, we're, we're to faithfully live into who God has created us to be, making the most of these opportunities, and in doing so, taking part in preparing the way for what God is doing in the lives of others. So we kind of set the stage, set the theme a little bit for John and how that relates to us. And really all this should appropriately make us aware of how profoundly valuable and meaningful each one of our lives are. As I said last week, that it's only with God through Christ do we answer those deep questions in our lives, who am I and why am I here? In Jesus, we find the deepest sense of belonging as we're reconciled to God, as we're brought into God's family. And we see that our lives are ripe with purpose as we're called to be Christ's ambassadors to a world that needs him. But as much as we need to know and live into all of this, is there such a thing as overestimating our personal significance? That might sound like a, str a strange question. Is there such a thing as overemphasizing our personal significance? 
It's a tricky question. And it's especially tricky as I lay it out for fear of you know, not wanting it to be misunderstood. I don't think we can overestimate God's individual love for us. And the amazing value that his love put on each one of us, that he would send his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins, that through faith, anyone who comes to the Lord by grace would be reconciled to God. Can't underestimate that. Can't overestimate that. But can we distort or mishandle this concept of personal significance, not in the sense of God's love for each one of us, but in the sense of maybe pridefully elevating self-importance to an unhealthy place? Now, surely for many, they underestimate who they are in Christ. And this is part of the dichotomy of who we are. I've talked about this several times, that we are both incredibly insecure and incredibly prideful, and God really wants to deal with both, and we are those at the same time. And many of us underestimate who we are in Christ, and we need to be rightfully instructed and encouraged in the themes of our identity in Christ, our, our, our purpose in Christ, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, that any, every one of us has a part and a gift and a role. But it does seem to me that we could wrongly swing the other way. I'm reminded of a quote, and, and sadly I don't remember who wrote it. I tried to look it up. That said, and I had a slide for this, and it was, had a cool picture too. But for some reason, it didn't come up on the computer. Um, but the quote simply says this. Be careful not to make an idol out of your own significance. Be careful not to make an idol out of your own significance. And in this, I was reminded of the temptation that we all have, that temptation that stems back to the Garden of Eden, the temptation of Adam and Eve, that we would be like God. And, and I think we find ways to justify it, and it creeps into every corner of our lives. And maybe we especially encourage it in a culture that is so, so individualized We hold, when we hold up, even in the church, kind of a, a puffed-up view of self and a twisted me-centric view of ministry, thinking ourselves somehow indispensable to the work of God in this world. We so easily forget, as, as Philippians 2 teaches us, that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And what that means is that it doesn't mean he wasn't equal to God. He was equal to God. But it wasn't something to be clung to or hold on, held on to or taken advantage of. But instead he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and so humbled himself that he obeyed God the Father all the way to death, even death on a cross. And sometimes I, I, I feel like in, 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 the, in the name of, and with good intentions many times, of 
encouraging identity in Christ, encouraging your significance in Christ. The Western church has sometimes made that search for personal purpose and significance an idol in itself. And of the, as if it's of utmost importance in the kingdom of God. And as a result, I think, and this is not, uh, this is entering into a complex problem, but I think partially as a result, many young adults who grew up in the church were kind of sold on this idea that because they're, they're, they, they, they have this place and purpose, uh, that they have the power and responsibility to purposely save the world, to personally save the world, I'm sorry. And that anything short of being able to enter in and personally save the world or, or, or rescue uh, this whole group of people or enter into this social ill and, and see this profound change, anything short of that would render their lives insignificant. But as, as we all enter into, we all know this, you live long enough, you enter into the physical and the mental and the emotional, spiritual brokenness of individuals, of societies, you understand that as you enter into them that those problems and resolving those problems and the world's ills and even an individual's problems are daunting and complex. And this is where I think a lot of disillusionment has set in. As many realize that their individual ability to prompt substantial change may have been severely overinflated. At this point, some of you might be thinking, well, Merry Christmas to you too. <laughs> what I want us to remember this morning is that what Christmas tells us is not that we can save ourselves or that we in and of ourselves can personally rescue this world but rather that on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government it will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It is he we are to glorify, he we are to represent, and it is only in him that we'll see lasting restoration, healing, and change. We are one tile in God's mosaic. He is Savior. In Christ, your status has been elevated beyond comprehension. If you come to Jesus, you've gone, to, you've gone from being completely impoverished and bankrupt in spirit to having the full rights and inheritance of a son and daughter of the living God. That's what the Bible teaches. Astounding. But at the same time, we, we live with this, this beautiful picture of who we are in Christ. We're also told over and over and over again what our attitude should be. That though that is true, and that is beautiful, and that will be, I think, more astounding than we could possibly imagine when we see Christ face to face, your attitude should be as Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing, 
your attitude should be. I think of, I, th- I thought of the living creatures that surround God's throne. Or the 24 elders that are at God's throne. Who when the, the living creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Those 24 elders who have crowns on their head bow before the Lord and cast their crowns before the Lord. And say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Our attitude should be the same as the Magi from the East. These men who came to a poor baby, born of a poor couple, and when they finally arrive after all that traveling, God's word says they appropriately bowed down and worshiped. Dare I say that even in the church, we too often set ourselves up toward worship of self and the worship of self-importance. Our attitude should be that of John the Baptist, who said, the one who comes from above is above all. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He is the man who comes after me, who has surpassed me because he was before me. He must become greater. I must become less. John was a young man. He was very much Jesus' contemporary, just about six months uh, older than Jesus, probably right around 30 years old. He was garnering for himself an impressive following. Droves of people came to hear his teaching, to participate in his baptism of repentance. John was so popular and his ministry so powerful, in fact, that many people were asking if he was God's prophesied Messiah, this prophesied anointed one. Imagine the temptation that would come with that kind of influence. Imagine the temptation toward idolizing your own self-importance. But John's attitude was always this, I'm not him. (laughs) I'm not Messiah. I am not Christ. I am not the Savior of the world. My life is an arrow. I point to him. I, I, we just read in John, in John 3, I'm the best man at the wedding. <laughs> I'm just preparing the day for the groom. The day is not about me. It's about the groom who has come for his bride. He knew how to step out of the spotlight and put a spotlight on Jesus. But man, that's hard for us, isn't it? How many of you guys ever saw uh, Incredibles 2? Incredibles 2, right? So this slide did work, good. So Incredibles 2, um, one, of the, one of the major subplots in that movie is that the father, anybody know the father's name? I know it's Mr. Incredible. His name is Bob, very good. Uh, the father, Bob, Mr. Incredible, has to, um, he's really, he's used to being a superhero, incredibly strong, Uh, But he has to deal with taking a back seat to his wife. (laughs) Here you go, husbands. This is a lesson for you and me. He has to deal with taking a back seat to his wife 
Elastigirl, also known as Helen. Uh, so Helen, Elastigirl, and uh, she is the one that has to go out and do the superhero work. And he struggles as he's left home with this new role of being a stay-at-home dad with uh, uh, a, a couple of adolescents and, and Jack-Jack, who is shooting things out of his eyeballs. And, um, but, but you see, and I think the movie actually does this really well, he's really struggling deeper. He's struggling with the fact that, that as his wife is going out to fight crime and getting all the accolades that come along with it, he isn't. <laughs> There's one scene that is pretty funny. She's out. She, she's somewhere else out in the country. And as they're talking, catching up in their day, uh, she's in a hotel room or something, and he's back at home, and he has a bathrobe on and a 5 o'clock shadow, and um, he's as tired as can be. And she just can't help herself. She blurts out, she blurts out, uh, I saved a runaway train. And he says with his robe and shoulders slumped, teeth gritted, I'm so proud of you, honey. And then he bangs his head on the table. It's hard to give the spotlight to someone else. Someone other than ourselves. But even as good as John the Baptist was at this, imagine John, 30 years old, having been a powerful agent of God's work, only to end up sitting in Herod's prison. Jesus is stepping into the work of which he has laid the groundwork. That was his role. He knew it. And at one point, he sends a message from prison. I'm sure being alone, being in a prison cell like that, will do things to your head. And he sends a message and he asks, are you the one who was to come? In other words, are you Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? It's really striking that John would ask this question. It really speaks to, and the Bible's very, very honest about the humanity of the situation, that this man, here, this man, the forerunner of Christ, is wondering, is having some doubts. And Jesus answers back. He replies, and he replies with words that reflect the prophecies of Messiah. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. must have been hard. Even for the great John the Baptist, as his star was falling and Jesus' was rising, apparently Jesus' ministry might have surprised him in some ways. Maybe it wasn't quite what he expected it to be as he was hearing reports. And now he sat in a prison cell must have been hard for him not to start to lose faith. And a lot of you know what that's like. 
We want to put on a brave face. But sometimes we sit in quiet, lonely, painful, confusing places. And things are certainly not quite what we expected. God, when I entered into this, I expected you can fill in the line. And maybe John didn't expect to be sitting in a prison cell at 30 years old. And in those places that things aren't quite what we expected, life might seem to be standing still or life might be, seem to be passing us by. And I think God just, Jesus just says the same thing to us in that place as he would to John, don't worry. I am the one the prophets foretold. I'm doing the job. I'm the savior of the world. You're one piece in my mosaic. Don't lose faith. John, at least physically, never gets out of that prison cell. I say at least physically because I'm sure it was quite a release as he stood before the Lord. He never gets out. Herod has a birthday party and John's head is asked for. And Herod, just feeling the pressure of his guests, uh, tells him to go behead uh, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's head is brought on a silver platter like it's some party favor. Jesus says in Luke 7, 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That's a big deal. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Think about the people that came before John. Noah and Moses and, and Abraham and David and the prophets. But here's the story of John. Powerful ministry, brief ministry. Powerful life, brief life. Dead, 30 years old, in a prison cell alone. How is it that we tend to have such an overinflated self-view <laughs> when this is the story of a man as great as John? And then even more so, how is it that we tend to coddle such a puffed up view of self and our personal comfort and our personal rights and accomplishments when the, when, the, when the perfect son of God was willing to come from his throne in heaven hearing for all eternity, holy, 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 and come and put on flesh and be born into obscurity and poverty and was ultimately mocked and tortured and killed as if he were a common criminal on behalf of those who were actually common criminals before God. But because Jesus was willing to do this as the perfect Son of God in obedience to the Father, Philippians 2 goes on to tell us, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a follower of Jesus, I'm called to set aside my inclination towards self-glory, to wanting to be like God. And to look to bring glory to the one who deserves it. So in my temptation to make ministry or my influence or my choices or my priorities or my relationships or my legacy all about me, instead he must become greater and I must become less. Too often we make an idol out of our own significance even in the church. So as we celebrate this Advent, the coming of the King, where do you need to give Jesus a greater place? And that may vary. That might be vary for every one of you here. Maybe it's, maybe it's prioritizing your time so you have time alone with God. But I'm so busy! Imagine, can you imagine, and I'm, I'm guilty, can you imagine if we stand before the throne and say, hey, listen, God, I know you wanted me to spend time with you. I know that was of utmost importance. I know that would be the transformative thing, that if I really want to know who I am and who, how I'm significant, it's all about my proximity to you, but I just didn't have time. <laughs> so maybe him becoming greater and you becoming less is saying, I need to reprioritize my time. Maybe it's your finances, a greater willingness toward generosity, that he would be greater, you would be less. Maybe it's that you need to reduce boasting and you, you start to hear yourself a little bit and you say, boy, I, I brag a whole lot more <laughs> than I uh, would like to admit. And I do it in subtle ways and talk about the, all the good things I do. And maybe instead of that, I need to stop boasting in myself and boast in the Lord. Maybe it's to back off your tendency to be controlling or to trust God in changing circumstances. To stop insisting on having your way or demanding to be first. Trusting God's way over your own. Maybe, maybe it's dealing with that sin that you just know in your heart of hearts is getting out of control. It's starting to master you. Maybe it's forgiving that grudge that you're holding on to. Maybe it's spending less time on self-promotion and self-advancement and rubbing shoulders with guys and gals that you know will get you ahead and starting to spend more time helping the least of these. Maybe for a couple of you, it's accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior for the first time. <laughs> you need to be greater. I need to be less. You're Lord. I'm not. You're God. I'm not. I'm sinner. You're Savior. The one who will be called great in God's kingdom is the one who puts Jesus first in all things. And learns to be a servant of all. Jesus, Jesus, you, Jesus had that message over and over again. You want to be great? Learn to be a servant. You want to be great? Learn to be servant. You want to be first? Learn to be last. 
The last will be first, the first will be last. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. He must become greater, I must become less. One last encouragement here, and, and this may put a little bit of a twist on things for you, but in Jesus' statement in, in Luke seven twenty eight, this is his full statement. He said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And then he says this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How can that be? How can he be the greatest born of women but yet, the least in the kingdom of God, whoever that is, maybe it's me, is greater than he. It's because, as Leon Morris writes, John belonged to the time of promise. And even le- the least in the kingdom of heaven belongs to the time of fulfillment. And that is the greater thing. That is the privilege that we have being on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Michael Wilcox writes, the humblest person who knows the kingly rule of Jesus in this life has a greater experience than even John ever knew. But I believe John prepares a way for us, us kingdom of God dwellers, with this vital lesson, him greater, me less. Lord, show me in my heart where you need to be greater and I need to be less, where your lordship needs to rule supreme, that I have made an idol of my own significance. I'm but one piece in God's beautiful mosaic, but one piece I am, no more, no less. Far from the complete artwork in and of myself, And yet the artwork would not be complete without any one of us. May you be reminded this Christmas that others aren't really meant to just see and marvel at you. But that God has made you beautiful, (laughs) colored you just right, placed you just right, so that people so that others would better see and marvel at Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father God, I I just pray that as we enter into these days of celebration, tomorrow's Christmas Eve and We'll have family around and friends around and we'll have a Christmas Eve service and we'll, we'll sing Christmas hymns and think of your coming and all that you came to accomplish. I pray, Lord God, that in all of that, we become worshipers. That our hearts are attuned to your greatness and that we appropriately bow down and worship you that even during this season, Lord God, of, of the waiting and the fulfillment, that you're working on our hearts, 
revealing those areas that we've made idols of self, of our own importance. May we yield to you that you would become greater and we would become less. We thank you, Lord God, that you have called us your sons and daughters. We thank you for the great privilege, Lord God, of being on this side of the cross and the resurrection, that beautiful place of being welcomed into your kingdom. But what may we live, Lord God, toward greatness as you define it. You would be first, and that would be a servant to all. May John the Baptist, Lord God, be a great encouragement to us. One piece in the mosaic, faithfully lived. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.